Part Two of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. Chapter Five. Barrent needed time to recuperate from his violent entry into Omegan life. Starting from the helpless state of a newborn, he had moved through murder to the ownership of an antidote shop. From a forgotten past on a planet called Earth, he had been catapulted into a dubious present in a world full of criminals. He had gotten a glimpse of a complex class structure and a hint of an institutionalized program of murder. He had discovered in himself a certain measure of self-reliance and a surprising quickness with a gun. He knew there was a great deal more to find out about Omega, Earth, and himself. He hoped he would live long enough to make the necessary discoveries. First things first, he had to earn a living. To do so, he had to find out about poisons and antidotes. He moved into the apartment in back of his store and began reading the books left by the late Haji, Draken. The literature on poisons was fascinating. There were the vegetable poisons known on earth, such as hellebore, setterwort, deadly nightshade, and the yew tree. He learned about the action of hemlock, its preliminary intoxication, and its final convulsions. There was prussic acid poisoning from almonds and digitalin poisoning from purple foxglove. There was the awesome efficiency of wolfsbane with its deadly store of aconite. There were the fungi, such as the amanita toadstools and fly agaric, not to mention the purely omegan vegetable poisons like red cup, flowering lily, and amortalis. But the vegetable poisons, although dismayingly numerous, were only one part of his studies. He had to consider the animals of earth, sea, and air, the several species of deadly spiders, the snakes, scorpions, and giant wasps. There was an imposing array of metallic poisons, such as arsenic, mercury, and bismuth. There were the commoner corrosives, nitric, hydrochloric, phosphoric, and sulfuric acid. And there were the poisons distilled or extracted from various sources, among which were strychnine, formic acid, hyocyamine, and belladonna. Each of the poisons had one or more antidotes listed, but those complicated, cautiously worded formulas Barrent suspected were frequently unsuccessful. To make matters more difficult, the efficacy of an antidote seemed to depend upon a correct diagnosis of the poisoning agent and too often the symptoms produced by one poison resembled those of another. Barrent pondered these problems while he studied his books. In the meantime, with considerable nervousness, he served his first customers. He found that many of his fears were ungrounded. In spite of the dozens of lethal substances recommended by the Poison Institute, most poisoners stuck single-mindedly to arsenic or strychnine. They were cheap, sure, and very painful. Prussic acid had a really discernible odor. Mercury was difficult to introduce into the system, and the corrosives, although gratifyingly spectacular, were dangerous to use. Wolfbane and fly agaric were excellent, of course. Deadly nightshade could not be discounted, and the amanita toadstool had its own macabre charm. 
But these were the poisons of an older, more leisurely age. The impatient younger generation, and especially the women who made up nearly ninety percent of the poisoners on Omega, were satisfied with plain arsenic or strychnine as the occasion or opportunity demanded. Omegan women were conservatives. They simply weren't interested in the never-ending refinements of the poisoner's art. Means didn't interest them. Only ends, as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Omegan women were noted for their common sense. Although the eager theoreticians at the Poison Institute tried to sell dubious mixtures of contact poison or three-day mold, and worked hard to put across complex haywire schemes involving wasps, concealed needles, and double glasses, they found few takers among women. Simple arsenic and fast-acting strychnine continued to be the mainstays of the poison trade. This quite naturally simplified Barrent's work. His remedies immediate regurgitation, lavage, neutralizing agent, were easy enough to master. He encountered some difficulty with men who refused to believe they had been poisoned by anything so commonplace as arsenic or strychnine. For those cases, Barrent prescribed a variety of roots, herbs, twigs, leaves, and a minute homeopathic dose of poison. But he invariably preceded these with regurgitation, lavage, and a neutralizing agent. After he was settled, Barrent received a visit from Dennis Foran and Joe. Foran had a temporary job on the docks unloading fishing boats. Joe had organized a nightly pokra game among the government workers of Tetrahyde. Neither man had moved much in status. With no kills to their credit, they had progressed only as far as second-class resident. They were nervous about meeting socially with a free citizen, but Barrent put them at ease. They were the only friends he had on Omega, and he had no intention of losing them over a question of social position. Barrent was unable to learn very much from them about the laws and customs of Tetrahyde. Even Joe hadn't been able to find out anything definite from his friends in government service. On Omega, the law was kept secret. Older residents used their knowledge of the law to enforce their rule over the newcomers. This system was condoned and reinforced by the doctrine of the inequality of all men, which lay at the heart of the Omegan legal system. Through planned inequality and enforced ignorance, power and status remained in the hands of the older residents. Of course, all social movement upward couldn't be stopped, but it could be retarded, discouraged, and made exceedingly dangerous. The way one encountered the laws and customs of Omega was through a risky process of trial and error. Although the antidote shop took up most of his time, Barrent persisted in his efforts to locate the girl. He was unable to find a hint that she even existed. He became friendly with the shopkeepers on either side of him. One of them, Desmond Harrisburg, was a jaunty, mustachioed man who operated a food store. It was a mundane and slightly ridiculous line of work, but, as Harrisburg explained, even criminals must eat. And this necessitated farmers, processors, packagers, and food stores. Harrisburg contended that his business was in no way inferior to the more indigenous Omegan industries centered around violent death. Besides, Harrisburg's wife's uncle was a minister of public works. Through him, Harrisburg expected to receive a murder certificate. With this all-important document, he could make his six-months kill and move upward to the status of privileged citizen. 
Barrent nodded his agreement, but he wondered if Harrisburg's wife, a thin, restless woman, wouldn't decide to poison him first. She appeared to be dissatisfied with her husband, and divorce was forbidden on Omega. His other neighbor, Tem Rend, was a lanky, cheerful man in his early forties. He had a heat scar which ran from just beneath his left ear down almost to the corner of his mouth, a souvenir given him by a status-seeking hopeful. The hopeful had picked the wrong man. Tem Rend owned a weapons shop, practiced constantly, and always carried the articles of his trade with him. According to witnesses, he had performed the counter-kill in exemplary fashion. Tem's dream was to become a member of the Assassin's Guild. His application was on file with that ancient and austere organization, and he had a chance of being accepted within the month. Barrent bought a sidearm from him. On Ren's advice, he chose a Jameson-type needle beam. It was faster and more accurate than any projectile weapon, and it transmitted the same shock power as a heavy-caliber bullet. To be sure, it hadn't the spread of heat weapons such as the Hajis used, which could kill within six inches of their target, but wide-range beamers encouraged inaccuracy. They were messy, careless weapons, which reinforced careless traits. Anyone could fire a heat gun, but to use a needle beam effectively you had to practice constantly, and practice paid off. A good needlebeam man was more than a match for any two wide-beam gunmen. Barrent took this advice to heart, coming as it did from an apprentice assassin and the owner of a weapons shop. He put in long hours on Wren's cellar firing range, sharpening his reflexes, getting used to the quick-throw holster. There was a lot to do and a tremendous amount to learn, just in order to survive. Barrent didn't mind hard work as long as it was for a worthwhile goal. He hoped things would stay quiet for a while so he could catch up to the older inhabitants. But things never stayed quiet in Omega. One day, late in the afternoon as he was closing up, Barrent received an unusual-looking caller. He was a man in his fifties, heavy-set, with a stern, swarthy face. He wore a red ankle-length robe and sandals. Around his waist was a rawhide belt from which dangled a small black book and a red-handled dagger. There was an air of unusual force and authority about him. Barrent was unable to tell his status. Barrent said, I was just closing up, sir, but if there's anything you wish to buy. I did not come here to buy, the caller said. He permitted himself a faint smile. I came here to sell. Sell? I am a priest, the man said. You are a newcomer to my district. I haven't noticed you at my services. I hadn't known anything about... The priest held up his hand. Under both the sacred and the profane law, ignorance is no excuse for non-performance of one's duties. Indeed, ignorance can be punished as an act of willful neglect based upon the Total Personal Responsibility Act of Twenty-Three, to say nothing of the lesser codicil. He smiled again. However, there is no question of chastisement for you as yet. I'm glad to hear that, sir, Barrent said. Uncle is the proper form of address, the priest said. I am Uncle Ingemar, and I have come to tell you about the orthodox religion of Omega, which is the worship of that pure and transcendent spirit of evil, which is our inspiration and our comfort. Barrent said, I'll be very happy to hear about the religion of evil, Uncle. 
Shall we go into the living room? By all means, nephew, the priest said, and followed Barrent to the apartment in back of the store. Chapter 6 Evil, the priest said after he had settled comfortably into Barrent's best chair, is that force within us which inspires men to acts of strength and endurance. The worship of evil is essentially the worship of one's self, and therefore the only true worship. The self which one worships is the ideal social being, the man content in his niche in society, yet ready to grasp any opportunity for advancement, the man who meets death with dignity, who kills without the demeaning vice of pity. Evil is cruel, since it is a true reflection of the uncaring and insensate universe. Evil is eternal and unchanging, although it comes to us in the many forms of protean life. Would you care for a little wine, uncle? Berent asked. Thank you. That's very thoughtful, Uncle Ingemar said. How is business? Fair. A little slow this week. People don't take the same interest in poisoning, the priest said, moodily sipping his drink. Not like when I was a boy newly unfrocked and shipped out from Earth. However, I was speaking to you about evil. Yes, uncle? We worship evil, Uncle Ingemar said, in the incarnate form of the Black One, that horned and horrid specter of our days and nights. In the Black One we find the seven cardinal sins, the forty felonies, and the one hundred and one misdemeanors. There is no crime that the Black One has not performed, faultlessly, as befits his nature. Therefore we imperfect beings model ourselves upon his perfections. And sometimes the Black One rewards us by appearing before us in the awful beauty of his fiery flesh. Yes, nephew, I have actually been privileged to see him. Two years ago he appeared at the conclusion of the games, and he also appeared the year before that. The priest brooded for a moment over the divine appearance. Then he said, Since we recognize in the state man's highest potential for evil, we also worship the state as a superhuman, though less than divine, creation. Barrent nodded. He was having a difficult time staying awake. Uncle Ingemar's low, monotonous voice lecturing about so commonplace a thing as evil had a sopophoric effect on him. He struggled to keep his eyes open. One might well ask, Uncle Ingemar droned on, if evil is the highest attainment of the nature of man, why then did the Black One allow any good to exist in the universe? The problem of good has bothered the unenlightened for ages. I will now answer it for you. Yes, Uncle, Barrent said, surreptitiously pinching himself on the inside of the thigh in an effort to stay awake. But first, Uncle Ingemar said, let us define our terms. Let us examine the nature of good. Let us boldly and fearlessly stare our great opponent in the face and discover the true lineaments of his features. Yes, Barrent said, wondering if he should open a window. His eyes felt incredibly heavy. He rubbed them hard and tried to pay attention. Good is a state of illusion, said Uncle Ingemar in his even monotonous tone which ascribes to man the non-existent attributes of altruism, humility, and piety. How can we recognize good as being an illusion? 
because there is only man and the black one in the universe, and to worship the black one is to worship the ultimate expression of oneself. Thus, since we have proven good to be an illusion, we necessarily recognize its attributes as non-existent. Understood? Barrent didn't answer. Do you understand? the priest asked more sharply. Eh? Barrent said. He had been dozing with his eyes open. He forced himself awake and managed to say, Yes, uncle, I, I understand. Excellent. Understanding that, we ask, why did the Black One allow even the illusion of good to exist in an evil universe? And the answer is found in the law of necessary opposites. For evil could not be recognized as such without something to contrast it with. The best contrast is an opposite, and the opposite of evil is good. The priest smiled triumphantly. It's so simple and clear-cut, isn't it? it? It certainly is, Uncle, Barrent said. Would, would you like a little more wine? Just the tiniest drop, the priest said. He talked to Barrent for another ten minutes about the natural and charming evil inherent in the beasts of the field and forest, and counseled Barrent to pattern his behavior on those simple-minded creatures. At last he rose to leave. I'm very glad we could have this little chat, the priest said warmly, shaking Barrent's hand. Can I count on your appearance at our Monday night services? Services? Of course, Uncle Ingmar said. Every Monday night at midnight we hold black mass at the wee coven on Kirkwood Drive. After services the ladies' auxiliary usually puts out a snack and we have community dancing and choir singing. It's, it's all very jolly. He smiled broadly. You see, the worship of evil can be fun. I'm sure it can, Barrent said. I'll be there, uncle. He showed the priest to the door. After locking up, he thought carefully about what Uncle Ingemar had said. No doubt about it, attendance at services was necessary. Compulsory, in fact. He just hoped that the Black Mass wouldn't be as infernally dull as Ingemar's exposition of evil. That was Friday. Brent was kept busy over the next two days. He received a shipment of homeopathic herbs and roots from his agent in the Blood Pit District. It took the better part of a day to sort and classify them, and another day to store them in the proper jars. On Monday, returning to his shop after lunch, Barrent thought he saw the girl. He hurried after her, but lost her in the crowd. When he got back to his store, Barrent found that a letter had been slipped under his door. It was an invitation from his neighborhood dream shop. The letter read, Dear Citizen, we take this opportunity of welcoming you into the neighborhood and extending to you the services of what we believe to be the finest dream on Omega. All manner and type of dreams are available to you, and at a surprisingly low cost. We specialize in memory-resurrecting dreams of Earth. You can be assured that your neighborhood dream shop offers you only the finest in vicarious living. As a free citizen, you will surely wish to avail yourself of these services. May we hope that you do so within the week? The Proprietors Barrent put down the letter. He had no idea what a dream shop was or how the dreams were produced. He would have to find out. Even though the invitation was graciously worded, it had a preemptory tone to it. Past a doubt, a visit to a dream shop was one of the obligations of a free citizen. But of course, an obligation could be a pleasure, too. 
The dream shop sounded interesting, and a genuine memory resurrection dream of Earth would be worth almost any price the proprietors wished to ask. But that would have to wait. Tonight was Black Mass, and his attendance there was definitely required. Barrent left his store at eleven o'clock in the evening. He wanted time for a stroll around Tetrahyde before going to the service, which began at midnight. He started his walk with a definite sense of well-being, and yet, because of the irrational and unexpected nature of Omega, he almost died before reaching the Wee Coven on Kirkwood Drive. Chapter 7 It had turned into a hot, almost suffocatingly humid night when Barrent began his walk. Not the faintest breath of air stirred along the darkened streets. Although he was wearing only a black mesh shirt, shorts, gun belt, and sandals, Barrent felt as if he were wrapped in a thick blanket. Most of the people of Tetrahyde, except for those already at the covens, had retired to the coolness of their cellars. The dark streets were nearly deserted. Barrent walked on, more slowly. The few people he met were running to their homes. There was a sense of panic in that silent, dogged sprint through heat which made walking difficult. Barrent tried to find out what the matter was, but no one would stop. One old man shouted over his shoulder, Get off the street, idiot! Why? Barrent asked him. The old man snarled something unintelligible and hurried on. Barrent kept on walking, nervously fingering the butt of his needlebeam. Something was clearly wrong, but he had no idea what it was. His nearest shelter now was the wee coven about half a mile away. It seemed best to keep on moving in that direction, staying alert, waiting to see what was wrong. In a few minutes Barrent was alone in a tightly shuttered city. He moved into the center of the street, loosened the needle-beam in its holster, and prepared for attack from any side. Perhaps this was some special holiday, like Landing Day. Perhaps free citizens were fair game tonight. Anything seemed possible on a planet like Omega. He thought he was ready for any possibility, but when the attack came it was from an unexpected quarter. A faint breeze stirred the stagnant air. It faded and returned, stronger this time, perceptibly cooling the hot streets. Wind rolled off the mountains of the interior and swept through the streets of Tetrahyde, and Barrent could feel the perspiration on his chest and back begin to dry. For a few minutes the climate of Tetrahyde was as pleasant as anything he could imagine. Then the temperature continued to fall. It dropped rapidly. Frigid air swept in from the distant mountain slopes, and the temperature fell through the seventies into the sixties. This is ridiculous, Barrent thought to himself. I'd better get to the coven. He walked more rapidly while the temperature plummeted. It passed through the forties into the low thirties. The first glittering signs of frost appeared on the streets. It can't go much lower, Barrent thought but it could. An angry winter wind blew through the street, and the temperature dropped into the twenties. Moisture in the air began forming into sleet. Chilled to the bone, Barrent ran down the empty streets, and the wind, rising to gale force, pulled and tugged at him. The streets glittered with ice, making the footing dangerous. He skidded and fell, and had to run at a slower pace to keep his footing. And still the temperature dropped, and the wind growled and snapped like an angry beast. He saw light through a heavily shuttered window. He stopped and pounded at the shutters, but no sound came from inside. He realized that the people of Tetrahyde never helped anyone. 
The more who died, the more chance there was for the survivors. So Barrent continued running on feet that felt like chunks of wood. The wind shrieked in his ear, and hailstones the size of his fist pelted the ground. He was getting too tired to run. All he could do now was walk through a frozen white world and hope he would reach the wee coven. He walked for hours or for years. At one corner he passed the bodies of two men huddled against a wall and covered with frost. They had stopped running and had frozen to death. Barrent forced himself to run again. A stitch in his side felt like a knife wound, and the cold was creeping up his arms and down his legs. Soon the cold would reach his chest, and that would be the end. A flurry of hailstones stunned him. Without conscious transition he found that he was lying on the icy ground, and a monstrous wind was whirling away the tiny warmth his body was able to generate. At the far end of the block he could see the tiny red light of the coven. He crept toward it on hands and knees, moving mechanically, not really expecting to get there. He crawled forever, and the beckoning red light always remained the same distance from him. But he kept crawling, and at last he reached the door of the coven. He pulled himself to his feet and turned the doorknob. The door was locked. He pounded feebly on the door. After a moment a panel slid back. He saw a man staring at him, then the panel slid shut. He waited for the door to open. It didn't open. Minutes passed, and still it didn't open. What were they waiting for inside? What, what was wrong? Barrent tried to pound on the door again, lost his balance, and fell to the ground. He rolled over and looked despairingly at the locked door. Then he lost consciousness. When he came to, Barrent found himself lying on a couch. Two men were massaging his arms and legs, and beneath him he could feel the warmth of heating pads. Peering anxiously at him was the broad, swarthy face of Uncle Ingemar. "'Feeling better now?' Uncle Ingemar asked. "'I think so,' Barrent said. "'Why did you take so long opening the door?' "'We almost didn't open it at all,' the priest told him. "'It's against the law to aid strangers in distress. Since you hadn't as yet joined the coven, you were technically still a stranger.' "'Then why did you let me in?' My assistant noticed that we had an even number of worshippers. We require an odd number, preferably ending in three. Where the sacred and the profane laws are in conflict, the profane must yield. So we let you in despite the government ruling. It's a ridiculous ruling, Barrent said. Not really. Like most of the laws on Omega, it is designed to keep the population down. Omega is an extremely barren planet, you know. The constant arrival of new prisoners keeps swelling the population, to the enormous disadvantage of the older inhabitants. Ways and means must be sought to dispose of the excess newcomers. It isn't fair, Barrent said. You'll change your mind when you become an older inhabitant, Ingemar said, and by your tenacity I'm sure you'll become one. Maybe, Barrent said, but what happened? The temperature must have dropped nearly a hundred degrees in fifteen minutes. A hundred and eight degrees, to be exact, Uncle Ingemar said. It's really very simple. Omega is a planet which revolves eccentrically around a double star system. Further instability, I'm told, comes from the planet's peculiar physical makeup, the placement of mountains and seas. The result is a uniformly and dramatically bad climate characterized by sudden violent temperature changes. 
The assistant, a small, self-important fellow, said, It has been calculated that Omega is at the outer limits of the planets which can support human life without gross artificial aids. If the fluctuations between hot and cold were any more violent, all human life here would be wiped out. It's the perfect punitive world, Uncle Ingemar said proudly. Experienced residents sense when a temperature change is about to take place and get indoors. It's hellish, Berent said at a loss for words. That describes it perfectly, the priest said. It, it is hellish, and therefore perfect for the worship of the Black One. If you're feeling better now, Citizen Berent, we shall proceed with services." Except for a touch of frostbite on his toes and fingers, Berent was all right. He nodded and followed the priest and the worshippers into the main part of the coven. After what he had been through, the Black Mass was necessarily an anticlimax. In his warmly heated pew, Berent drowsed through Uncle Ingemar's sermon on the necessary performance of everyday evil. The worship of evil, Uncle Ingemar said, should not be reserved solely for Monday nights. On the contrary, the knowledge and performance of evil should suffuse one's daily life. It was not given to everyone to be a great sinner, but no one should be discouraged by that. Little acts of badness performed over a lifetime accumulated into a sinful whole most pleasing to the Black One. No one should forget that some of the greatest sinners, even the demoniac saints themselves, often had humble beginnings. Did not Thrastus start as a humble shopkeeper, cheating his customers of a portion of rice? Who would have expected that simple man to develop into the red slayer of Thorndike Lane? And who could have imagined that Dr. Luen, son of a dockhand, would one day become the world's foremost authority on the practical applications of torture? Perseverance and piety had allowed those men to rise above their natural handicaps to a preeminent position at the right hand of the Black One. And it proved, Uncle Ingemar said, that evil was the business of the poor as well as the rich. That ended the sermon. Berent awoke momentarily when the sacred symbols were brought out and displayed to the reverent congregation, a red-handled dagger and a plaster toad. Then he dozed again through the slow inscribing of the magical pentagon. At last the ceremony neared its end. The names of the interceding evil demons were read. Baal, Forcus, Buer, Marcosius, Astaroth, and Behemoth. A prayer was read to ward off the effects of good, and Uncle Ingemar apologized for not having a virgin to sacrifice on the red altar. Our funds were not sufficient, he said, for the purchase of a government-certified peon virgin. However, I am sure we will be able to perform the full ceremony next Monday. My assistant will now pass among you. The assistant carried around the black-rimmed collection plate. Like the other worshippers, Berent contributed generously. It seemed wise to do so. Uncle Ingemar was clearly annoyed at not having a virgin to sacrifice. If he became a little angrier, he might take it into his head to sacrifice one of the congregation, virgin or not. Berent didn't stay for the choir singing or the community dancing. When the evening worship was finished, he poked his head cautiously out of the door. The temperature had gone up to the seventies, and the frost was already melted from the ground. Berent shook hands with the priest and hurried home. Chapter 8 Berend had had enough of Omega's shocks and surprises. He stayed close to his store, worked at his business, and kept alert for trouble. 
He was beginning to develop the Omegan look. A narrow, suspicious squint, a hand always near gunbutt, feet ready to sprint. Like the older inhabitants, he was acquiring a sixth sense for danger. At night, after the doors and windows were barred and the triplex alarm system had been set, Barrent would lie on his bed and try to remember Earth. Probing into the misty recesses of his memory, he found tantalizing hints and traces and fragments of pictures. Here was a great highway curving toward the sun, a fragment of a huge multi-level city, a close-up view of a starship's curving hull. But the pictures were not continuous. They existed for the barest fraction of a second, then vanished. On Saturday, Barrent spent the evening with Joe, Danis Foran, and his neighbor Tem Rend. Joe's pokra had prospered, and he had been able to bribe his way to the status of free citizen. Foran was too blunt and straightforward for that. He had remained at the residency level. But Tem Rend promised to take the big forger as an assistant if the Assassin's Guild accepted his application. The evening started pleasantly enough, but it ended, as usual, with an argument about Earth. Now look, Joe said. We all know what Earth is like. It's a complex of gigantic floating cities. They're built on artificial islands in the various oceans. No, the, the cities are on land, Brent said. On water, Joe said. The people of Earth have returned to the sea. Everyone has special oxygen adapters for breathing salt water. The land areas aren't even used anymore. The sea provides everything that— It isn't like that, Barrent said. I remember huge cities, but they were all on land. Foran said, You're both wrong. What would Earth want with cities? She gave them up centuries ago. Earth is a landscaped park now. Everyone has his own home and several acres of land. All the forests and jungles have been allowed to grow back. People live with nature instead of trying to conquer it. Isn't that right, Tem? Almost, but not quite, Tem Rand said. There are still cities, but they're underground. Tremendous underground factories and production areas. The rest is like Foran said. There aren't any more factories, Foran insisted stubbornly. There's no need of them. Any goods which a man requires can be produced by thought control. I'm telling you, Joe said, I can remember the floating cities. I used to live in the Nimwi sector on the island of Pacific. You think that proves anything? Rand asked. I remember that I worked on the 18th underground level of Nueva Chicago. My work quota was twenty days a year. The rest of the time I spent outdoors in the forests. Foran said, That's wrong, Tem. There aren't any underground levels. I can remember distinctly that my father was a controller, third class. Our family used to trek several hundred miles every year. When we needed something, my father would think it, and there it'd be. He promised to teach me how, but I guess he never did. Barrent said, Well, a couple of us are certainly having false recall. That's certain, Joe said. But the question is, which of us is right? We'll never find out, Wren said, unless we can return to Earth. That ended the discussion. Toward the end of the week, Barrent received another invitation from the Dream Shop, more strongly worded than the first. He decided to discharge the obligation that evening. He checked the temperature and found that it had risen into the high nineties. Wiser now, in Omegan ways, he packed a small satchel full of cold-weather clothing and started out. 
The Dream Shop was located in the exclusive Death's Row section. Barrent went in and found himself in a small, sumptuously furnished waiting room. A sleek young man behind a polished desk gave him an artificial smile. "'Could I be of service?' the young man asked. "'My name is Nomis J. Arkdragon, assistant manager in charge of Nightside Dreams.' "'I'd like to know something about what happens,' Barrent said. "'How one gets dreams, what kind of dreams, all that sort of thing.' Of course, Arkdragen said. Our service is easily explained. Citizen Barrent, Will Barrent. Arkdragen nodded and checked a name from a list in front of him. He looked up and said, Our dreams are produced by the action of drugs upon the brain and the central nervous system. There are many drugs which produce the desired effect. Among the most useful are heroin, morphine, opium, cocoa, hemp, and peyote. All those are earth products found only on Omega are Black Slipper, Nace, Manasee, Trinarcotine, J. Dallas, and the various products of the Carmoid group. Any and all of these are dream inducers. I see, Barrent said. Then you sell drugs. Not at all, Arkdragon said. Nothing so simple, nothing so crude. In ancient times on Earth, men administered drugs to themselves. The dreams which resulted were necessarily random in nature. You never knew what you would dream about or for how long. You never knew if you would have a dream or a nightmare, a horror or a delight. This uncertainty has been removed from the modern dream shop. Nowadays our drugs are carefully measured, mixed, and metered for each individual. There is an absolute precision in dream-making, ranging from the nirvana-like calm of Black Slipper through the multicolored hallucinations of peyotol and trinarcotine, to the sexual fantasies induced by nasi and morphine, and at last to the memory-resurrecting dreams of the Carmoid group. It's the memory-resurrecting dreams I'm interested in, Barrent said. Arkdragon frowned. I wouldn't recommend it for a first visit. Why not? Dreams of Earth are apt to be more unsettling than any imaginary productions. It's usually advisable to build up a tolerance for them. I would advise a nice little sexual fantasy for your first visit. We have a special sale on sexual fantasies this week." Barrent shook his head. I think I'd prefer the real thing. You wouldn't, the assistant manager said with a knowing smile. Believe me. Once one becomes accustomed to vicarious sex experiences, the real thing is pallid by comparison. Not interested, Barrent said. What I want is a dream about Earth. But you haven't built up a tolerance, Arkdragon said. You, you aren't even addicted. Is addiction necessary? It's important, Arkdragon told him, as well as being inescapable. All our drugs are habit-forming as the law requires. You see, to really appreciate a drug, you must build up a need for it. It heightens pleasure enormously, to say nothing of the increase in toleration. That's why I suggest that you begin with, I want a dream about Earth, Barrent said. Very well, Arkdragon said grudgingly, but we will not be responsible for any traumas which accrue. He led Barrent into a long passageway. It was lined with doors, and behind some of them Barrent could hear dull moans and gasps of pleasure. Experiencers, Arkdragon said, without further explanation. He took Barrent to an open room near the end of the corridor. Within sat a cheerful-looking bearded man in a white coat reading a book. 
Good evening, Dr. Wayne, Arkdragon said. This is Citizen Barrent. First visit. He insists upon an Earth dream. Arkdragon turned and left. Well, the doctor said, I guess we can manage that. He put down his book. Just lie down over there, Citizen Barrent. In the center of the room was a long, adjustable table. Above it hung a complicated-looking instrument. At the end of the room were glass-sided cabinets filled with square jars. They reminded Barrent of his antidotes. He lay down. Dr. Wayne put him through a general examination. Then a specific check for suggestibility, hypnotic index, reactions to the eleven basic drug groups, and susceptibility to titanic and epileptic seizures. He jotted down his results on a pad, checked his figures, went to a cabinet, and began mixing drugs. Is this likely to be dangerous? Barrent asked. It shouldn't be, Dr. Wayne said. You appear healthy enough. Quite healthy, in fact, and with a low suggestibility rating. Of course, epileptic fits do occur, probably because of cumulative allergic reactions. Can't help that sort of thing. And then there are the traumas, which sometimes result in insanity and death. They form an interesting study in themselves. And some people get stuck in their dreams and are unable to be extricated. I suppose that could be classified as a form of insanity, although actually it isn't. The doctor had finished mixing his drugs. He was loading a hypodermic with the mixture. Barrent was having serious doubts about the advisability of the whole thing. Perhaps I should postpone this visit, he said. I I'm not sure that I... Don't worry about a thing, the doctor said. This is the finest dream shop on Omega. Try to relax. Tight muscles can result in tetanic convulsions. I think Mr. Arkdragon was right, Barrent said. Maybe I shouldn't have a dream about Earth for my first visit. He said it was dangerous. Well, after all, the doctor said, what's life without a little risk? Besides, the most common damage is brain lesions and burst blood vessels, and we have full facilities for taking care of that sort of thing. He poised the hypodermic over Barrent's left arm. I've changed my mind, Barrent said, and started to get off the bed. Dr. Wayne deftly slid the needle into Barrent's arm. One does not change one's mind, he told Barrent, inside a dream shop. Try to relax. Barrent relaxed. He lay back on the bed and heard a shrill singing in his ears. He tried to focus on the doctor's face, but the face had changed. The face was old, round, and fleshy. Ridges of fat stood out on the chin and neck. The face was perspiring, friendly, worried. It was Barrent's fifth-term advisor. Now, Will, the advisor said, you must be careful. You must learn to restrain that temper of yours, Will. You, you must. I know, sir, Barrent said. It's just that I get so mad at that. Will. All right, Barrent said. I'll, I'll watch myself. He left the university office and walked into the city. It was a fantastic city of skyscrapers and multi-level streets, a brilliant city of silver and diamond hues an ambitious city which administered a far-flung network of countries and planets. Barrent walked along the third pedestrian level, still angry, thinking about Andrew Thurcoller. Because of Thurcoller and his ridiculous jealousy, Barrent's application for the Space Exploration Corps had been turned down. There was nothing his advisor could do about the matter. Thurcoller had too much influence on the selection board. It would be a full three years before Barrent could apply again. 
In the meantime he was earthbound and unemployable. All his studies had been for extraterrestrial exploration. There was no place for him on Earth, and now he was barred from space. Thurcaller. Barrent left the pedestrian level and took the high-speed ramp into the Santee district. As the ramp moved, he fingered the small weapon in his pocket. Handguns were illegal on Earth. He had procured his through untraceable means. He was determined to kill Thurcaller. There was a wash of grotesque faces. The dream blurred. When it cleared, Barrent found himself aiming his handgun at a thin, cross-eyed fellow whose scream for mercy was abruptly cut short. The informer, blank-faced and stern, noted the crime and informed the police. The police, in uniforms of gray, took him into custody and brought him before the judge. The judge, with his vague, parchment face, sentenced him to perpetual servitude upon the planet Omega, and handed down the obligatory decree that Barrent be cleansed of memory. Then the dream turned into a kaleidoscope of horror. Barrent was climbing a slippery pole, a sheer mountainside, a smooth-sided well. Behind him, gaining on him, was Thurcaller's corpse, with its chest ripped open. Supporting the corpse on either side were the blank-faced informer and the parchment-faced judge. Barrent ran down a hill, a street, a rooftop. His pursuers were close behind him. He entered a dim yellow room, closed and locked the door. When he turned around, he saw that he had locked himself in with Thurcaller's corpse. Fungus was blossoming in the open wound in the chest, and the scarred head was crowned with red and purple mold. The corpse advanced, reached for him, and Barrent dived head-first through the window. "'Come out of it, Barrent! You're overdoing it! Come out of the dream!' Barrent had no time to listen. The window turned into a chute, and he slid down its polished sides into an amphitheater. There, across gray sand, the corpse crept toward him on the stubs of arms and legs. The enormous grandstand was empty except for the judge and the informer who sat side by side, watching. He's stuck. Well, I warned him. Come out of the dream, Barrett. This is Dr. Wayne. You're on Omega in the dream shop. Come out of the dream. There's still time if you pull yourself out immediately. Omega? Dream? There was no time to think about it. Brent was swimming across a dark, evil-smelling lake. The judge and the informer were swimming just behind him, flanking the corpse whose skin was slowly peeling away. Brent! And now the lake was turning into a thick jelly which clung to his arms and legs and filled his mouth while the judge and the informer— Barrent! Barrent opened his eyes and found himself on the adjustable bed in the dream shop. Dr. Wayne, looking somewhat shaken, was standing over him. A nurse was nearby with a tray of hypodermics and an oxygen mask. Behind her was Arkdragon, wiping perspiration from his forehead. I didn't think you were going to make it. Dr. Wayne said. I, I really didn't. He pulled out just in time, the nurse said. I warned him, Arkdragon said, and left the room. Barrett sat up. What happened? he asked. Dr. Wayne shrugged his shoulders. It's hard to tell. Perhaps you were prone to circular reaction, and sometimes the drugs aren't absolutely pure, but these things usually don't happen more than once. Believe me, Citizen Barrett, the drug experience is very pleasant. I'm sure you'll enjoy it the second time." Still shaken by his experience, Barrent was certain there would be no second time for him. Whatever the cost, he was not going to risk a repetition of that nightmare. 
Am I addicted now? he asked. Oh, no, Dr. Wayne said. Addiction occurs with the third or fourth visit. Barrent thanked him and left. He passed Arkdragen's desk and asked how much he owed. Nothing, Arkdragen said. The first visit is always on the house. He gave Barrent a knowing smile. Barrent left the dream shop and hurried home to his apartment. He had a lot to think about. Now, for the first time, he had proof that he was a willful and premeditated murderer. Chapter 9 Being accused of a murder you can't remember is one thing. Remembering a murder you have been accused of is another thing entirely. Such evidence is hard to disbelieve. Barrent tried to sort out his feelings on the matter. Before his visit to the dream shop he had never felt himself a murderer, no matter what the Earth authorities had accused him of. At worst, he had thought that he might have killed a man in a sudden uncontrollable fit of rage, but to plan and perform a murder in cold blood. Why had he done it? Had his lust for revenge been so great as to throw off all the restraint of Earth's civilization? Apparently so. He had killed, and someone had informed on him, and a judge had sentenced him to Omega. He was a murderer on a criminal's planet. To live here successfully, he simply had to follow his natural bias towards murder. And yet, Barrent found this extremely difficult to do. He had surprisingly little taste for bloodshed. On Free Citizen's Day, although he went into the streets with his needle-beam, he couldn't bring himself to slaughter any of the lower classes. He didn't want to kill. It was a ridiculous prejudice, considering where and what he was, but there it was. No matter how often Tem Rend or Joe lectured him on his citizen's duties, Barrent still found murder quite distasteful. He sought the aid of a psychiatrist, who told him that his rejection of murder had its roots in an unhappy childhood. The phobia had been further complicated by the traumatic qualities of his experience in the dream shop. Because of this, murder, the highest social good, had become repugnant to him. This anti-murder neuroses in a man eminently suited for the art of killing would, the psychiatrist said, inevitably lead to Barrent's destruction. The only solution was to displace the neurosis. The psychiatrist suggested immediate treatment in a sanitarium for the criminally non-murderous. Barrent visited a sanitarium and heard the mad inmates screaming about goodness, fair play, the, the sanctity of life, and other obscenities. He had no intention of joining them. Perhaps he was sick, but he wasn't that sick. His friends told him that his uncooperative attitude was bound to get him into trouble. Barrent agreed, but he hoped by killing only when it became necessary that he would escape the observation of the highly placed individuals who administered the law. For several weeks his plans seemed to work. He ignored the increasingly peremptory notes from the dream shop and did not return to services at the Wee Coven. Business prospered, and Barrent spent his time studying the effects of the rarer poisons and practicing with his needle-beam. He often thought about the girl. He still had the gun she had lent him. He wondered if he would ever see her again. And he thought about Earth. Since his visit to the dream shop he had occasional flashes of recall. Isolated pictures of a weathered stone building, a stand of live oaks, the curve of a river seen through willows. This half-remembered earth filled him with an almost unbearable longing. Like most of the citizens of Omega, his only real wish was to go home. And that 
was impossible. The days passed, and when trouble came, it came unexpectedly. One night there was a heavy knocking at his door. Half asleep, Barrent answered it. Four uniformed men pushed their way inside and told him he was under arrest. What for? Barrent asked. Non-drug addiction, one of the men told him. You have three minutes to dress. What's the penalty? You'll find out in court, the man said. He winked at the other guards and added, But the only way to cure a non-addict is to kill him, eh? Barrent dressed. He was taken to a room in the sprawling Department of Justice. The room was called the Kangaroo Court, in honor of ancient Anglo-Saxon judicial proceedings. Across the hall from it, also of antique derivation, was the Star Chamber. Just past that was the Court of Last Appeal. The Kangaroo Court was divided in half by a high wooden screen, for it was fundamental to Omegan justice that the accused should not see his judge nor any of the witnesses against him. Let the prisoner rise, a voice said from behind the screen. The voice, thin, flat, and emotionless, came through a small amplifier. Barrent could barely understand the words. Tone and inflection were lost, as had been planned for. Even in speaking, the judge remained anonymous. Will Barrent, the judge said, you have been brought before this court on a major charge of non-drug addiction and a minor charge of religious impiety. On the minor count we have the sworn statement of a priest. On the major count we have the testimony of the dream shop. Can you refute either of these charges? Barrent thought for a moment, then answered, No, sir, I can't. For the present, the judge said, your religious impiety can be waived since it is a first offense, but non-drug addiction is a major crime against the state of Omega. The uninterrupted use of drugs is an enforced privilege of every citizen. It is well known that privileges must be exercised, otherwise they will be lost. To lose our privileges would be to lose the very cornerstone to our liberty. Therefore, to reject or otherwise fail to perform a privilege is tantamount to high treason." There was a pause. The guards shuffled their feet restlessly. Barrent, who considered his situation hopeless, stood at attention and waited. "'Drugs serve many purposes,' the hidden judge went on. I need not enumerate their desirable qualities for the user. But speaking from the viewpoint of the state, I will tell you that an addicted populace is a loyal populace, that drugs are a major source of tax revenue, that drugs exemplify our entire way of life. Furthermore, I say to you that the non-addicted minorities have invariably proven hostile to native Omegan institutions. I give you this lengthy explanation, Wilberent, in order that you may better understand the sentence which is to be passed upon you." Sir, Barrent said, I was wrong in avoiding addiction. I won't plead ignorance, because I know the law doesn't recognize that excuse. But I will ask you most humbly for another chance. I ask you to remember, sir, that addiction and rehabilitation are still possibilities for me. The court recognizes that, the judge said. For that reason, the court is pleased to exercise its fullest powers of judicial mercy. Instead of summary execution, you may choose between two lesser decrees. The first is punitive, that you shall suffer the loss of your right hand and left leg in atonement for your crime against the state, but that you shall not lose your life." Barrent gulped and asked, "'What is the other decree, sir?' The other decree, which is non-punitive, is that you shall undergo a trial by ordeal, 
and that, if you survive such a trial, you shall be returned to appropriate rank and position in society. I'll take the trial by ordeal, Barrent said. Very well, said the judge. Let the case proceed. Barrent was led from the room. Behind him he heard a quickly concealed laugh from one of the guards. Had he chosen wrong? He wondered. Could a trial by ordeal be worse than an outright mutilation? End of Part 2 of The Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. 1946-1970